Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, I've spent my life, literally almost my entire life, try, for people trying to standardize me, people trying to like measure me against a standard. And I've never lived up to it, ever. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Amanda, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, you are uh, one of a long line of people who our mutual friend Sarah Peck has sent my way. And for some reason, she seems to have this just intuitive understanding of how to find really good people uh, to be on The Unmistakable Creative. So uh, it's really uh, you know awesome to have you here. So uh, as you know from I'm having heard our interviews, uh, I want to start with a question that I think is interesting and kind of out there. And that is what birth order were you and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? 
Okay. Well, this is a bit of a complicated answer because I am, uh, well, technically birth order is I'm the youngest. I'm the third of three, um, Mm -hmm. which simple, very simple answer. But then um, there's, there are complications because I, I then become um, in different, I become, I'm in a different order in the family structure because the family structure changes. So I'm the youngest of three. And then my parents divorce, my dad remarries, and he has two kids with his wife. So downtown, I'm the youngest. But when I go uptown, I'm the middle. Then mm-hmm. my mom marries someone who already has four kids. Three of them move in with us. So I become the youngest now of six in that house. But then when I'm 16, mm-hmm. they have a baby and I become the second youngest. So I am all different. Um, I'm in all different. Um, what's the word? Uh, striation. Straight. I don't. There's an S word that I am. Um, and I think that I act pretty much like the youngest. Um and except for with my baby sister, where I act like her mother. Um, and it's affected my life in the sense that I think I'm constantly trying to get, I'm trying to reclaim the attention I feel I probably lost somewhere along the way. Um, I think that that's mm-hmm. one way that it influences my life. Um, I think that another way it influences my life is that I'm, because I was born at the time I was born, um, in my family, where my parents were clearly unhappy, I, they separated when I was like eight months old. So I was born into sort of a, a probably a depressed situation. Um, and I think because of the time and the circumstance into which I was born, I have spent my life trying to make people laugh and sort of mm-hmm. keeping my real, authentic pain hidden underneath um and just trying to keep people like together and community oriented and you know in a group um so Uh yeah so i think that that's sort of the way it all unfolded what did you learn about uh social dynamics and relationships from having to navigate so many different siblings you know, it's it's funny you ask that because I think that in the past couple of years, that's been something I'm trying to actually figure out um, because you would think that I'd be, on the one hand, I'm really comfortable with in a big group, but on the other hand, I get really, um, I get really attuned to being left out. So when I'm in a big group and I see like a couple of people are pairing up to be a little bit clicky and I'm not part of that, I feel that younger sister, you know, um, pull. And, um, I have, I just feel this sort of weird, um, type of tension, this threatening tension. Um, and I'm really good one-on-one, but, but it's strange. I think that in the house I grew up in, Um, there were so many of us, but we were often alone in our rooms doing our own thing. We didn't really communicate. We didn't really hang out together. We didn't really have conversations. So it was like this almost false sense of, um, false sense of community because the numbers were there, but, um, but the interactions weren't really there. So I think that it, it created, um, it, it it forced me to become comfortable in a huge group setting, but but at the same time a bit at at a loss for how to um, for how to operate in those big social dynamics because mm-hmm. you know I was always used to being alone. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing that, that struck me throughout the book, I know you included uh, all of these uh, reports from various therapists and doctors, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, I wonder, how old were you when you started to become aware of the fact that you were dealing with all of these issues? Like, when did you have sort of an awareness of, okay, something isn't right and something is not making me feel right? Well, I knew very early on. Um, I think that I knew probably at around four or five. Um, that something was 
causing me to have a different experience in life than my siblings and my friends. And that my experience was, um, my experience was holding me back in some way um, from actually feeling the ease and the carefreeness that I watched my siblings and my friends have. I, I also, because it was very um, clear to me, there were things that I actually couldn't do. So I knew that there was something wrong with me. Um, you know, I couldn't sleep at a friend's house. I couldn't have a friend sleepover. I couldn't make it through my dad's for a weekend. So it was this very almost, um, it was so transparent without meaning to be, you know, it was so obvious that I was the one who was struggling and, um, and that was so mortifying in a way because I didn't want people to watch me be struggling so openly. I didn't, you know, I felt very exposed by it. Um, so yeah, so I think I just, I knew early on that there was something, uh, there was something inside me that was making me, that was holding me back and was making me suffer in ways that it wasn't doing for my siblings or my friends. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously from having read the book, I know that therapy was a big part of, of navigating this. I wonder, you know, it, it, like every time I read, you know, all the various reports and all the various testing and all this stuff, I, I thought to myself, God, I'm like, how could you go through childhood not feeling like you were defined by all of these things? And I wonder, did you ever figure out a way to separate your identity from the way that you were defined by the things you were being told from the adults in your life? Um, yeah, I think that I, I've managed to, but it's taken me, it's taken me my entire life, literally my entire life. It, I can, I can't remember the last time that I actually legitimately felt um, that I was hiding my intelligence or my lack of intelligence from other people. Um, but it was probably like six years ago when I last felt legitimately dumb. Like my entire childhood, basically, for you know people who haven't read the book, which probably a lot of people, um, I grew up with you know this undiagnosed panic disorder and it was um manifesting in all these ways uh the most uh, the most evident was in school i was doing so terribly and i was failing tests and i was doing poorly on standardized tests that they just assumed i had a learning disability so i was constantly iq tested um and um so being i was sort of raised on iq tests and and what what that taught me was that it it, it I was raised to believe that intelligence is information, that that is that one thing equals the other, that intelligence means knowing facts, figures, data, and when, you know, just memorization, basically, um, remembering things or having, um, it, having learned things in school, those things equal intelligence. It's not about um, how you synthesize information or how you create something or how you um, how you feel about something it's it's you know it's all sort of school learning means intelligence and so I was just raised to really believe that and i I also knew that I didn't have that kind of intelligence um, encrypted in my brain. I was so anxious all the time that I couldn't take in information. So, it, you know, perhaps I had learned all the stuff that I was being asked on these, these tests, but I hadn't retained any of it. And so the lack of um, retention meant I was stupid. Um, so I did, I definitely, you know, spent my entire life feeling like I was getting one over on people when they would think I was, you know, funny or said something smart or wise or, you know, whatever the case was. But I. I really thought that I was, I felt very defined by it my, my entire life. And I, I've tried, I've worked really, really hard to, um, to overcome it. And I think um, the challenge was that I needed to believe what I already, I needed to choose to believe what I knew I believed, which was that intelligence is not information. Um, you know, I think that I had a fundamental understanding of what it was to be smart when I was really young. And I felt like I was smart when I was really young. 
um, because I was creative and it was before all the tests started that I felt like I was, I was a type of smart that counted, um, because I was creative and I was intuitive and I was insightful and I was funny and I thought all that meant smart, but then that was erased, you know, after years and years of IQ testing. So it took me my entire adult life to get back to where I was when I was like four or five to that point where I, where I could re-embrace what I believe to be intelligence. Um, which is all those things being creative and insightful and intuitive. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's an interesting definition of intelligence, particularly when you live in a world that glorifies achievement, that puts uh, a huge amount of emphasis on pedigree and status. I mean, I don't know what, you know, your parents were like, actually I do from having read the book, <laughs> but it sounds like you, know, you were kind of socialized to believe that status mattered that, you know, like you grew up in an Indian family, it's very clear. They're like, here's a set of colleges you could apply to. If you don't get into any of these, you're an idiot. Right. Um, right. That's the implicit message. And so I wonder uh, if you, you know, you're, let's, you mean, a lot of parents are listening to this. What would you want them to know about this experience from having been uh, in your shoes? Well, I guess what I would want parents to know is that when your kids are um, when your kids are complaining, when your kids are whining, when your kids are having tantrums, they're doing something else. All you're doing is picking up on the external experience that they're having but they're having an internal experience and they're trying to tell you something and you need to listen to what they're trying to tell you um and i think so often a lot of parents um don't know that there's something either they don't know something deeper is going on or they don't have the patience for it or they don't take it seriously but um but i was around i'm around parents all the time a lot of my like almost all my friends have kids and they have friends who are parents. And so I've met a lot of extended, you know, friend friends. Um, and last week I was around um, this woman, a parent who kept on saying that her son who was, who's six is always complaining that she wants him to be perfect. And she wasn't getting it. She wasn't understanding what he was telling her. And, you know, I don't know the dynamic in that family. I don't know exactly why he was telling her that, but he was telling her that for a reason. It's because he felt some sort of expectation that was out of alignment with who he is. And I think that there's this, this sense of um, incongruence that parents don't listen to. They don't pay attention to. Um, so I guess, you know, in, in my case, it was very obvious. Um, it, it was very obvious what was going, what was being ignored. And it was, you know, uh, the fact that I was having problems leaving my mom and it was the focus became on school. They just sort of transferred the focus because it was easier to get some sort of a solution. If it were academic, if it was academic and not emotional, then, you know, Parents feel like they have, uh, they can find an answer for that. Um, but I guess I just, you know, I want parents to, um, I want parents to listen to what their kids are saying underneath the words that they're using. And, you know, and how do you do that? Well, you watch their actions. You know, if you're, if your kid is, is having trouble sleeping and they're not even trying to sleep, then something else is going on. You know, if your kid keeps saying, I can't sleep, I can't sleep, but they're not trying to sleep, that's an incongruence. There's something else going on and you need to get in there and figure it out with the kid. You know, I think parents figure out for their kids so often. Parents so often figure out for their kids what's wrong instead of including the kid in the conversation. And I think that's where a lot of parents go wrong. Mm. Um, what would you want educators to know uh, from having been a student in this perspective? Like you had, we're talking to a group of teachers. What would you want them to, to know? All right. The very first thing I would want them to know is stop calling on kids whose hands aren't raised. Just stop. Don't do it. It's traumatic. It's traumatic for kids who have anxiety. 
and um, it's traumatic for kids who just feel stupid. It's just not necessary. So that's the first thing I would say. And then they would come back with, well, how do we help? We're just trying to get help our students come out of their comfort zone. And I'm like, well, it's not up to you to decide what their comfort zone is, right? It's, it's not a teacher's responsibility to figure out where their student needs to learn how to be comfortable. It's up to that student. And you can figure it out with the student, but not for them. So I think that, um, that, that teachers need to um, recognize, you know, teachers have a certain learning style. And te- I mean, teachers have a certain teaching style and um, students have a type of learning style, but there's only one teacher and there's like, you know, 30 to 80 students in a class or something. So that's a lot of different learning styles to pay attention to. And there are a lot of different emotional styles to pay attention to. So it's a lot to ask of one teacher to pay attention to all the different things that are going on in the class. but. Um, but it's not a lot to ask a teacher to not call on a kid whose hand is not raised. Um, and I, I think that there are so many different ways to, um, to figure out, um, you know, workarounds. If, and, but it's, you need to do it with the student or with the parents and the student. You can't just decide on your own what this kid needs. Um, and I also think that, you know, a lot of the times teachers will blame Someone, a kid for acting out, and kids don't act. Kids don't act out to be difficult, just to be difficult. That's not. People don't do that. You know, people don't just decide they're going to be difficult for absolutely no reason. There's always a reason underneath the thing that's presenting itself as an issue, always. And I just don't understand why it's so difficult a concept for grownups. For adults, for teachers and parents to recognize that they're not, you know, that when someone is having a tantrum, they're not doing it to be difficult. They're doing it because they have no words to articulate their experience. They don't have the language to explain to you what's going on. You're the adult. You have to help them talk to you and you have to help figure out what's going on with the kid alongside that kid. I mean, I'd honestly, if you could tell from my tone, I'd probably be like ending up yelling at them, but, um, (laughs) I don't, I get very heated, um, about, you know, about this topic. And, um, uh, so I get, I get upset. I get really mad, you know, I just don't understand. And I get mad because I'm 150 years old when I was a child, like it shouldn't be the same. The teaching style shouldn't be the same. The parenting style shouldn't be the same as when I was a kid. It shouldn't. And it is in so many ways. And I don't understand how I know all this. And I don't even have kids. You know, why, why have I been the one to do all the work? And I don't even have children. Like, do some work. I get very, I get very upset. Anyway. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I I brought the question up because I felt it was such an important part of your work. When I, I read the book, it struck me uh, particularly because I, I was, you know, I was for the most part labeled smart, and then it all went to shit when I got to college. So <laughs> um, it's one of those things that has always really kind of stayed with me in terms of, of you know unwinding this narrative of okay, I'm not smart. I was like, okay, I'm not book smart because I suck at standardized tests. But um, I, I wonder, you know, somewhere along the way, obviously something shifted. I mean, you write books for a living, so I know that this takes a certain level of intelligence and depth and creativity because I've, I've done it myself. So mm-hmm. I wonder, uh, you know, what happened post high school, like that led you down this path? God, what happened post high school? Well, I mean, I'd been writing since I was a child, so it's something I've always done. It hadn't been, um, before high school ended. I was writing plays in high school. I was produced off Broadway. Those things to me weren't they weren't celebrated in the same way that like getting into a good school was celebrated. So the message was still the same for me. It wasn't like, you know, Oh, you're so smart. You did this thing. It was like, Oh, you're not smart at doing school things. Why don't you write a play instead? So it was, there was never a sense that what I was doing had any bearing on intelligence at all. Um, and 
I think I moved towards, yeah, I mean, I don't think I really had a choice. I'm a creative person and I, um, you know, I think a little bit differently and I see things a little bit differently. Um, or, or I don't, and that's just what I've been told my whole life and I believe it. But, um, I, you know, after college, I just, I started working in film, um, but I was always writing and then I accidentally became a comic and I was always writing. And I think, um, and college was, college is actually when I, I first began to realize that, um, I could excel academically if I was given the choice of what to take, you know, what classes to take. Mm -hmm. So in college, I was, I was the first time I was ever given any sort of um, positive feedback about my, my brain. Um, And that, you know, I was able, I was able to um, understand new languages, you know, like um, theoretical languages like film theory and, you know, all this, I took a lot of theory classes and I was really good at it. Um, And I was surprised that I was good at it. And everyone around me was surprised that I was good at it, but I picked up the language of it really easily. And so I felt momentarily intelligent, but then of course, at the end of studying that everyone was like, well, you know, it was a pointless thing for you to study. You can't do anything with it. You know, it's not necessary. so, you know, I sort of dropped back to my default of, oh, okay, well, so I'm back to being stupid. Um, it, there wasn't a sense that writing books or writing meant you were smart. I never had that. I never had that sense. Well, that's actually, that's not true. I, I, I thought, let's see, I thought that I, um, I wanted to write. I always wanted to write. And when I wrote my first novel, um, I did it uh, from like midnight to six in the morning. Um, And I and I wrote it that way, I think, because it made me feel safe and hidden. Like I wouldn't be exposed. No one would know what I was doing. No one would look at me over in Starbucks and see like chapter four. I would just be, you know, completely hidden from the world. Um, and I, and I did have the sense that I wasn't smart enough to write an actual traditional novel. And so I sort of schemed my way around it. And I feel like that's sort of what my adulthood has felt like, like I've been scheming and wanting to do something that other people do, but I'm not capable of doing it because I'm not smart enough. But if I scheme and you know, sort of reroute or do things in a different way or call this something else, then I can get away with it. But, you know, my first novel came out and then I got, um, you know, I got some reviews, not many, but I got some and, um, you know, a bunch of them were super positive. And, um, and, but something about that experience of having that first book come out and and not having um i don't i don't i still don't know what it is but there's something about having that book come out that traumatized me and and made me feel like um it was it was too exposing i was too exposed and that people would be um any sort of negative feedback i got on the book or any mild criticism i took to mean that i was outed for being stupid and or that i wasn't capable of doing something or that if you know if someone pointed out a sentence that didn't work i i took that i globalized it um to mean every sentence didn't work so i i at that point what i what i did was i decided that um i just maybe wasn't good enough and i wasn't smart enough and and I was asked if I could write some children's books and I thought, well, I don't want to be known as a children's book writer, but obviously people think I'm not smart enough to write adult books. So that's why I'm being asked to write children's books. So I guess I'll write children's books because, you know, I'm not smart enough to do what I really want to do. So I did that and I, you know, got paid well and it was fun, but I wrote it under a pseudonym, two pseudonyms. um, And, 
it just sort of kept me away from the work I really wanted to do. The work that I thought I wasn't smart enough to do. Um, so when it finally, you know, when it just, when I, when so much time passed and I hadn't written my next book, I felt like I was revealing myself to be an absolute failure. Um, and so I just sort of forced myself to start writing, you know, my next book. And it, it was torture. There's nothing about the experience that told me I was smart enough to do it. Nothing. And, you know, I, I didn't think I was smart enough to do it. I, I had panic attacks constantly while writing this book, constantly. And, you know, any, any, any rejection um, I got from, you know, when we sent the book out and one person rejected it, it, I fell into my bed for a weekend and was convinced that, you know, that I was an idiot, that I was just so dumb and I was fooling myself and everyone was like, you know, humoring me or something. Um, but yeah, there's nothing in me that thinks I'm smart enough to write a book in the way that really smart people write books, you know, like I'm not Colson Whitehead. I'm never going to be able to write a book like Colson Whitehead. Um, I'm never going to be able to write like Zadie Smith. I'm only going to be able to write like me. And to me, at some point, I'm going to have to say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean, you know, you're bad at what you do or you're good at what you do? It's just not what other people do, you know? Yeah. So mm -hmm. that was a long-winded answer that didn't Yeah, no, no, that, really that was answer. beautiful. <laughs> Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, no, no, that's exactly what I was looking for. So, you know, I think there are certain passages in the book that really struck me. I think, you know, as I was saying before we hit record, because I think in, in many of them, I kind of saw reflections of some of the, the experiences I've had in my own life. And I remember this at the very beginning of the book where you say, I pushed when I should have pulled and I've waited when I knew I wanted to run. And I've always known right from the start, whether or not a particular guy is the one, 
But once I'm connected, separation feels too harrowing, even if all my love has turned sour. Somewhere early on, I learned that attachment meant love, and now I can't find my way out. And I think the reason that struck me so much was because I literally thought, you know what, like I knew with every girlfriend I've had that I was going to break up with her uh, at some point, like all the ones. And then all of the ones that I didn't want to have leave did leave, which that's why that that stayed with me. So so I wonder, you know, did you ever, did you unlearn that at any point or is it still true for you, this idea that attachment means love? Um, I think that I've, I've been unlearning it for the past um, I don't know, six, seven years. Um, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, writing the book and it's not really just writing the book, but well, that's not true. Writing the book and having to talk about the book has, um, almost accelerated my rate of learning, um, about myself, about the world, about people. And, um, and I, you know, sometimes when you're writing, you don't really know what it is that you're saying until you say it. And that was one of the, it's funny you picked that passage because that, once I wrote that sentence, somewhere along the way, I I was taught that attachment means love. I didn't know, I I didn't know that that's, that was true until I wrote it. And so when I wrote it, I was like, holy shit, that is actually legitimately true. Um, And now I can sort of work to undo that. but. Um, yeah, I know that attachment no longer means love. Um, I, I think I'm, I understand a bit more about what actual love should feel like and what it looks like and, um, in my body and other people's actions. Um, and, um, you know, the thing that I have to work on, I think is, um, is my, my anxiety about being, see, I have an anxiety about being attached and I have an anxiety about being separate. So Mm. it's, it's really difficult. Um, and so it's something I've really had to battle against, um, in relationships and, you know, the the easiest thing for me to do for a long time was just not to date because I thought, you know, I want to get over this. But then I was like, well, I can't get over it alone. You know, you can't. (laughs) So I thought, but I really was like, I'm just going to like save everyone from, from, Uh from me. And, um, and then I realized, well, this is not really going to work out for anyone. So, um, so I just, you know, so I've been dating again, but it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's practice. It's a real practice. It's like a, a, an actual practice to not um to not fall back into old habits and patterns and to change you know Mm. if you want to change if you want to become a new way um it's you can do it it's just that the you know the old way um is going to fight back every fucking step of the way yeah i can relate yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's hard Um, but i mean it's doable yeah so there's something else that you said, and probably the reason this struck me is because I just turned 41. Uh, you said, it still feels like a joke that I'm 40. How can I be this old and feel not grown up? I'm waiting to feel the way everyone else my age seems to feel is capable enough for marriage and parenthood and career stability and mortgages. And, you know, I think that the narrative in our society is very much that, holy shit, what the hell is wrong with you if you've gotten to 40 and this hasn't happened? Uh, I remember right. somewhere in the book, you'd mentioned the fact that there was a guy who was like 46 or something and friends were like, oh yeah, the fact that this is, you know, he's this age and not married or whatever, these are all red flags. And I it, it, immediately in my mind, I thought, oh my God, I'm like, should I just update my Bumble profile and say, star, I have a shitload load of red flags? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, yeah, it is, it is funny. It is the, you know, the way that we, um, the way that we classify and categorize people's like where they are in life. It's like, we're trying to standardize a model of being a person and Mm. it's not possible. We are all fundamentally the same and all fundamentally different. And you can't classify or categorize how a person should be. You can't. You have to just let people be who they are. But we don't know how to do that for some reason, or we're too scared to do it. And so I think that people just want rules. They need rules. They need guidelines. They need structure. 
and we've imposed um, a set of guidelines and structures and rules that really just don't work for everyone. And I mean, what is going to work for everyone? Not much. Skin, that works for everyone. You know, like that's it. And, you know, air. But I think that what I've also come to realize is that no one knows what they're doing. No one, you know, and it's, um, but we're led to believe that, that everyone who's a parent or everyone who's got a mortgage or everyone who's got a career has, has it together, but Uh, no, they don't. They just have these, like they've, they have trappings and they're called trappings for a reason. But they have, you know, these life trappings that legitimize them. And yet, they're, a lot of them don't know how to parent. You know, a lot of them are fucking their kids up. Am I allowed to curse? I am. I've heard other people curse. I can curse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, <you> can. <laughs> so I, um, you know, I, it's just, I think that it took me a long time to realize that, um, you know, I've spent my life, literally, almost my entire life, Try for people trying to standardize me, people trying to like measure me against a standard. And I've never lived up to it ever. I have always failed in some capacity or been made to feel like I've failed. So as I've grown into adulthood and I also am not, you know, me, I'm also not meeting the standards by which adults are measured. Um, I have never felt like I fit inside um the model or the mold of um how a person should be and it's taken me until now to realize that i actually think i do know how to be a person and it's everyone else not everyone else but it's you know it's a lot of other people who who don't who are living by something that is making their lives smaller and you know they're living by something that um is just so surface And, you know, there are more unhappily married people than there are happily married people. And it it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, there's so many things that don't make sense to me in this world. I'm about to, like, go off on a little bit of a tangent. But, like, why would would people who are are about to join forces and, uh, like, bank accounts and money, like, why would they need help starting their lives? Why are those the people that get, you know, helped starting their lives, but single people don't, you know? So it's like all the people who are doing the things adults are supposed to be doing get rewarded for it. Um, And so it sort of feeds into this idea that they're doing it right. The tangent didn't work. It like spiraled back. But um, so I don't know. I, I, I forgot the question and I went off on a, no, and, and now I'm back. You well, no, your tangents are phenomenal. I'm loving them. They're really, really insightful and, and thought provoking. Okay. Uh, I wonder how how has your relationship with uh, your family changed over time? So, um, it's a good question. I feel like um, I've had to pull away a bit um, in order to um, sort of. It's hard to have a, like a type of separation anxiety from your mom when um, when you're also angry, you know. Um, and I'm I'm no longer a hundred percent angry. I'm probably like twelve percent angry. Um, but it's you know I've had to remove myself uh, a lot just in order to. Um, to learn that attachment doesn't mean love, um, which is, you know, modeled sort of on my relationship with my mom, I think. Um, and when I was writing the book, when the book was done and before I handed it in, I, I gave it to my family to read. Um, and I gave it to my siblings and I gave it to my mom and my dad. It was like terrifying. Um, and it was during that period of time that I felt like my siblings and I got, I mean, we're close, but we got closer. And I feel like sort of being honest about everything that, that happened made other people honest also. 
although that was temporary and it's reverted back to normal now. But um, <laughs> but I feel like I'm the one who's most honest in our family about, you know, um, I'm the one who faces things. I'm the one who, who calls people on their shit. I'm the one who, um, I'm, you know, I'm the emotional one, but I'm also the one who is constantly working on themselves and constantly trying to um, become like the best version of myself I could possibly be. Um, and I think yeah. that that's, you know, not everyone wants to be around someone like that. You know, they, yeah. they don't want to be around someone who is calling them on their shit or, you know, um, calling myself on my shit in front of them that, you know, they don't know what to do, but to try and make me feel better. And that's not what I want. Um, mm. So, you know, it's, I don't even know if the answer is that it's changed. Um, it's just, I've become more of me. Um, and I think that I've almost forced them into accepting that I am this person. Here's who I am. You didn't accept me growing up as this person, but you will now, mm -hmm. you know, so, so I've changed. So I wonder, uh, you know, from, from looking at the pop culture references in the book to people like Cindy Crawford, uh, I know that we're both uh, close in age mm -hmm. and I wonder what role you think, uh, social media has played in amplifying uh, people's sense of insecurity. Oh God. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to, I'm really happy. I don't have kids. I am just going to lead with that yeah. because I don't know. You know, I know how to deal with other people's kids, but if I had kids, I don't know what I'd do. It, I, I would feel tormented on their behalf. I think it's, um, I think it's a horror show. I honestly think it's like just traumatizing and horrible for kids. Um, you know, there's, remember when you were in like seventh grade and you were like, why did Alexis walk past me and not say hi? You know, oh, and yeah. then you like, sue about it all day and then you don't speak to her and then you end up like not being friends with her because she didn't say hi and um and then like you find out three months later that she had like an eye infection and didn't see you um so i feel like now it's not about like alexis not saying hi it's like oh my god tommy liked alexis's instagram post but didn't like mine and i only have 12 likes and she has 400 likes and like just obsessing over that is it's nonstop. Alexis not talking to you happens once a day, right? Or not once a day, once, a, once in a while. Um, these little snubs at school, they happen, but they didn't happen 35 times a day or 50 times a day. I feel like social media is like constantly, um, constantly exacerbating this inherent anxiety that we plant in our kids and in our society. It's just constantly keeping it alive. Um, yeah. And I, I just think it's horrible. I think the whole, I think it's a shit show. Um, I, I, and I think honestly, like you caught me on a day when I feel like the world is a shit show. Like I honestly feel like the world is fucking <laughs> shit show. And you know, like legitimately in every way it's a shit show. Um, but social media is um, the falsest, representation of reality that you know that we could muster well no that's mm. not true i'm sure there are no. other falser ways um of doing that i just don't know the technology yeah. so I, I yeah i think it's i think it's terrible i think it's um i think it's you know it's great for the kids who are really pretty um and it's terrible for the you're you're a teenager, you're a preteen, you're in your awkward phase. Who wants to mm -hmm. be on Instagram? Like, no, I wouldn't want to be on Instagram in my middle school years. You're kidding me. I'd have to take a picture of like, a, a, like a finger, the only good looking part of me, you know, like, Oh, here's my <laughs> finger. Like, I just don't under, here's a hair follicle. This is the best you're going to get of me at 13. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's just like, why, why are we making our kids compete with people who are in their 30s? You know? Mm. 
Yeah. That's, that's why I have a dog. So, there's two things I want to talk about to bring us full circle. I think this also really struck me. So over my life, I've worried so much and feared so many things. And though many of those things actually happened, here I am still alive, having survived what I thought I couldn't. I didn't turn out the way I thought I would. I didn't get married. I didn't have kids and not having and the not having didn't kill me either. And then you say that since I was small, I've had one foot in the future, never fully present with time and space inside which I'm standing. Those two two passages, I think, probably struck me because I kind of saw my own life. And, you know, I'm sitting here at 41 with literally, I mean, I, I wrote a book called The Scenic Route, What I Have Learned from a Life That Hasn't Turned Out the Way I Thought It Would. Ooh, and, I want that. Um, I'll send it okay, to you. You, you can read it <laughs> online for free. It's at unmistakablecreative.com slash scenic for anybody who wants to read it. Um, oh, awesome. But that really struck me because... Uh, you know, like, I think we all want what we want. So how do you resolve that tension of the things you didn't get and the not having, even though it didn't kill you? Right. I'm guessing on some level, there are still some of these things you want. Like, I know none of this has killed me, but I still want these things. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. Some of those things changed. Like, you know, I no longer want kids. I, you know, I want, I, I, I would be happy to have other people's kids. Like I, I wouldn't, I'd be psyched to meet someone who had kids. That would make me really happy. But I don't want my own anymore, you know? And I, I just, I, I don't know why or how it happened, but I sort of just grew out of it or I got used to the fact it wasn't going to happen for me or I don't know. But so I don't, what was the question? How do I resolve how do I resolve that? Yeah, I guess how do you resolve this tension of, of you know, the things that you want, but the things you know you're probably never going right. to get, potentially? Well, you know? I guess, you know, it's really just a, 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 a matter of shifting your attention and, like, your, the, you know, the way, that you, the way that you think about things affects the ways that you behave. And if, you know, you could spend all your time thinking about all the things you didn't get, um, but then you're just missing out on... You know, it sounds so trite, but you're missing out on the things that you do have, you know, and there's, I have a ton of things. And I just, I think that I realized at a certain point, all right, I really want a family. I don't have a family. Why does family have to look this one way? You know, if I'm a person who believes that there's not one way to be a human being, then why would I believe there's one way to have a family? You know, and I don't, and I believe that there's other ways and there non-traditional ways and i feel like you know i've i i'm sad yes i am sad i'm sad i don't have my own family that i can come home to and you know tell the mundane things uh, about my day and you know share exciting news but i do have a, an amazing community i have incredible friends i have incredible acquaintances i I just, you know, I'm invited places all the time, but that sounded braggy and gross. What I mean is like, I'm invited to like, you know, hang out on someone's stoop to drink beers at 6 p.m. Right. on Sunday. That's what I mean. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, <laughs> there's, there's, I feel like, you know, if I need something to do, I can find it. I don't need my own, you know, a nuclear family to create um an experience or for something for me to happen. So I think that you, you know, it's, I think it resolves as you pay more attention to the things that you have or how you can make the best of the time that you have. Like, you don't, I don't know. I don't know that I'm not going to meet someone who has kids. I don't know. I can assume yeah. I won't, but then I'm going to be living my life assuming I'm going to be alone forever. So why not just think about it? Just don't think about it. And don't, don't, it's like, don't, um, don't decide for your future. You know, it's like deciding in advance what's going to happen or what's not going to happen. Um, and we just don't have that kind of power. But I think it just makes so much more sense to say like, well, all right, here are all these things I want to do. Um, I'm waiting for someone to do those things with that is so dumb. Like, why would I be waiting for someone to go see art with? I can just go call Nellie and we can go see art. Like you don't, 
off. You don't, you know, if you really think about it, you don't need the things you thought you needed in order to do the things you want to do. You know what I mean? So I think yeah. that, that you, you reconcile it by facing it. You have to really face it. If you ignore it, then you'll never reconcile it. But, you know, if you face how strong you are standing upright in a world that you thought you'd, you'd have a certain something and you don't have it, that should make you feel stronger, not weaker. And I think that that's where we go wrong. That's where we fall apart is that we think we didn't get this thing. How weak? No, we didn't get this thing. And yet look at us. Here we are. We're doing what we're doing. Yes, I am. I am not winning prizes. I am not the best writer there is. I am, you know, I'm not where I thought I'd be. But who is, you know, it's just that's just a thought. Just because you thought it doesn't mean it was ever true. You know, so I think that the only way to 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 handle it is just to be proud of what you are enduring by not, you know, by by living your life, not having the things that you wanted and you're you're doing it, you're killing it. You know, even if you're not killing it, you're killing it in something. Yeah. Wow. That's what I think. Um, I think that makes a really beautiful and poetic end. So I want to finish with uh, one final question, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, I think the thing that makes someone unmistakable is when they are um, not beholden to any um, any way that they think they're supposed to be, but their own. I think that a person is unmistakable when they are living um, when they are living according to their core self, their core principles, their core feelings. When they are aligned with how they feel in life and they're congruent with the things that they feel, their act, words and their actions align, I think that is an unmistakable person. Um, so someone who is just living according to their set of instructions, not anyone else's. That's what I think. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with the listeners. This has been awesome. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to? Um, well, I have a website, amandastern.com. Um, and I've been blogging, although not last week, I'm very sorry, about um, mental health issues. Um, and that's on Amanda Stern also, amandastern.com. Um, my book is called Little Panic. They can get it um, in independent bookstores on Amazon if they want. Um, it's coming out in paperback on May, on May 14th. So I would love for people to pre-order it if possible. Um, they could go to indiebound.org, I think it is, um, which is you just type in your zip code and it'll bring up all your the independent bookstores in your neighborhood. And then you can just order the book from there. Um, and I think that, that's all the places I am. Um, you know, and then they can come find me in Fort Green, Brooklyn. Cool. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.